was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. After a bit of a break, I am so happy to be back presenting my interview with the amazing performer, Christine Petty. Appearing on Broadway as Mama Morton in Chicago, as well as in Little Me and Talk Radio, she is perhaps best known for her long stint off-Broadway in Forbidden Broadway. She also made a big hit in Musical the Musical, and can be heard daily hosting On Broadway on Sirius XM. She appeared off-Broadway in productions of The Mad Show, Miss Abigail's Guide to Dating, Mating, and Marriage, Jerry's Girls, and My Favorite Year, as well as on screen in The Sopranos and Steven Universe. Her popular cabaret show, There's No Business Like Snow Business, has been performed at 54 Below and many other illustrious venues. She also recently helped to reopen Feinstein's 54 Below with her tribute to Chicago, performed last week. So, without further ado, Christine Petty. So, I'd love to start by asking how you first became interested in theater. I started um, late. I, I, I really wasn't interested. I, I, in high school, a little bit. I did, I did plays, but I didn't really know what Broadway was, if you can believe that. I kind of didn't really know what it was. We didn't have, we had one cast album in the house. I guess I knew it was a play, but I didn't know it was part of this phenomenally rich, densely packed world of characters and musicals. And I just didn't know how many more like it there were out there. Mm-hmm. And then in high school, they had, the, they had the, I went to an all girls school and in high school, we did plays with the all boys school. And so that's when I discovered big, plays because they had you know money for sets and props and large casts and stuff and I was in the chorus for a few years and then I graduated up to um, Mrs. Malloy and Hello Dolly because um, I had done Godspell and the teacher the director told my mother that she thought I should take singing lessons that I had a good voice and I thought huh like really and so she suggested somebody who was who was the second Lori in Oklahoma, <clears throat> oh. a lovely woman named Evelyn Hancock. When she was in Oklahoma, her name was Evelyn Wyckoff. And uh, I would go to her house every Sunday afternoon. I paid her $7 for an hour. And she just taught me soprano songs and Italian art songs, which I found desperately boring but I didn't belt a note in any of my in any of my classes with her and then when I was in college a friend of mine wanted to do side by side by Sondheim and I thought uh I knew the album because when I was in college I was part of the college radio station and so that's when I discovered their stash of LPs and I had started getting uh records out of my local library which also had a 
wonderful collection of cast recordings. I mean, they had My Fair Lady in like eight languages. Oh, they had it in like Hebrew. I mean, it was amazing. I, I'd like, wow, I guess I can do this. Um, so that, you know, that's how it started. And then when I graduated from college, I did not major obviously in performing. Um, and, uh, I graduated college and I, I worked at the college radio station. So I wanted to go into film or television production and I was temping while I was waiting to find a job in film or television production. And there was also community theater that I discovered up in Westchester, which I didn't know anything about when I was in college. I can't believe I didn't know anything about it. Um, so I auditioned for Mac and Mabel and I got the lead. And uh, then I just did, you know, probably almost not that. It was actually about five to seven years of community theater playing the best roles ever. Oh. Ever, 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 ever. Um, and I was, was temping, working for a telethon. Then I got hired full time, but I was still doing community theater. And I started getting antsy. I hated, I hated the desk job from day one. Loved my boss, a dear, dear, sweet man. Hated the, the desk job. And realized I really wanted to give performing a shot. I didn't know anybody in the business except John Tracy Egan. You know, John? Oh, yes, yes. Okay. I just said, okay. And I gave them, I was with them for two years and I gave them notice. Good Friday was my last day. I loved quitting, like my last day being good Friday. I thought it was an omen. Yeah, (laughs) P.S. Let's see. That was five years later. It took me to get a real decent paying job in the theater. I think I got two jobs in those five years, maybe three, auditioning constantly at non-equity auditions, constantly with hundreds of girls. And I kept on doing it and doing community theater at the same time. So that's where, that's how it started. Yeah. Yeah. So I do want to go back, I guess, a little to ask you if your family had wanted you to go into theater. They didn't even know like me, like, look, if I was a talented kid in high school that showed promise and suddenly like had like had to do theater um and if somebody had said to my parents yeah she might be able to do this they might have considered you know they might have supported it because my parents uh were fans you know they they liked to see me perform but they weren't stage parents and i didn't really i didn't really start to shine until till out of college so they were supportive whenever I did any plays, but it was not, you know, it was not, it didn't reflect on what I was going to do with my future. And I also didn't know, by the way, that there was such a thing as a performance, like a, a performance major, a musical oh. theater major. I would go to, I would go to a career days and that never came up, but I went to a fancy girl's school and I guess whatever universities were there and there were some major universities there. But whatever universities were there, I guess, didn't flaunt their musical theater program. If somebody had said there was a musical theater program, I might have gone, maybe I should go there. Now, I didn't have a lot of options because I had to live locally in the New York area. We didn't have a lot of money. So I had very limited options. Uh, As it turned out, I ended up going to Fordham University because I loved their radio station, which to this day is a stellar radio station. 
and it has a, a just an incredible reputation for you know fifty years, and I I made the right choice there. Yeah. It, but so I my parents ultimately when I decided to do it professionally were very supportive. You know they were con- confounded by the business. <laughs> have you ever read Moss Hart's book called Act One? Yes, I have. Okay, well. Of course you have. My father read, I read that book, loved it. My father read that book one summer, like in a few days, he read on the couch and just read it and read it and read it. And he went, you're in a shit business. Boy, oh boy, this is a shit. Yeah, I don't believe this. Because the things that happened to Moss Hart with like up at the Catskills and the things that happened to Moss Hart with that creepy Jed Harris producer. And uh, I I don't remember a lot of it because it was so, it was like 30 years ago I read the book. But, you know, the stories he, the pictures he painted and the stories he told, uh, just devastated my father. And granted, it was at a probably a far more ruthless time where you could get away with some really, really dastardly deeds. Yeah. You didn't have to answer to unions or whatever, but even so, he, he was just devastated. Like, unbelievable, that crappy business you're in, boy, oh boy. And he didn't say it like, you stupid fool, you shouldn't be in it. He said it more like he meant it to mean, you poor thing, this whole situation is bad. There's nothing we can do about it. But it comes out, you know, like still comes out like bad news. You know? yeah. um, but, they, but they were very, my father passed away, but my parents are, were very supportive. And I think, again, it's because they were fans. And it wasn't just that they liked me as a performer, but they liked exact, they liked the, the kind of stuff I did. You know, if I were doing a lot of Chekhov or Eugene O'Neill, they might have been like, she's very good. Yeah, but I don't understand it, you know. But I did musicals, I did comedies, and that they totally dug that. So my mother's still alive, and, you know, she enjoys the funny stuff. As a matter of fact, I was at, I was doing something called Broadway by the Year, and it, it was like 1960, I think. The year was 1960. And you know, there were a lot of shows on Broadway that year that people know, and we would sing some of those famous songs. But then the whole point of Broadway by the year was to also sing lesser known gems. And there were some kicky, lovely tunes, one of which I really enjoyed. And I said, how about that song, Ma, in the second act? And she's like, oh, yeah, it was good. I said, but is it, no, really, I thought it was really good. She went, well, I mean, I don't know it. And I went, well, I know, but isn't it, nice to hear something you don't know well I mean I didn't recognize it or anything so I mean I don't know I mean I don't know what it's about but I mean and I went wait a minute so you really just prefer songs you know well yeah I mean of course I said even if your daughter is singing them I mean you can't just enjoy it because your daughter's singing them but no I mean when there's a certain strata of audience member in the world out there that are only comfortable with things they know and my mother's one of them uh, and happily, I've done enough things she knows in my life that she's a fan. So, yeah. so there's that. And I also want to ask you about your uncle, Tom Petty, who, for those who don't know, he was in the original Guys and Dolls and Death of a Salesman. And... Yeah, Tom, he lived in California. When I was growing up, he lived in California because he had already moved out to California. And he was like, a, he was my grandmother's first cousin. So you know your first cousin, right? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty easy to figure out who your first cousin is. Well, it's my grandmother's first cousin, so he's a little bit distanced from me. That makes him, that actually, by the way, makes him my first cousin, twice what? removed. My anyway, father. and he was removed to California, so. 
and we'd always we'd always heard about him and that he had made a couple of amazing movies and he had been incredible, you know, but he was also that he was blacklisted in the 1950s. Yeah. And we always got cute Christmas cards from him, funny photographs of him in some, you know, just some something funny. And finally, because I worked for this telethon, I went to Los Angeles. And so I I got to look him up. And it was love at first sight. We got along in funny, not funny, like he's just innately vibrated at a funny speed. Because he talked like this. He was a character from the tip of his toes to the top of his hat. He wore mismatched plaids. He he was kind. He was generous. He was always telling me, oh, uh, you know, somebody famous, his name would come up like Harry Belafonte. I loaned him 50 bucks once, you know, or he, no, Harry Belafonte. He paid Harry Belafonte's hotel bill once. That's what it was. Um, uh, you know, I was at a play, a play with all these classic old actors. It was, it was, uh, two men on a horse, I think it was called. And it was with, um, Jack Klugman and and Tony Randall do you know them from the odd couple yes okay so so but uh, and a whole bunch of other amazing character actors I think maybe Jerry Stiller was in it and stuff but one of them he said oh good old I forget who it was Joey Faye Joey Faye was is in this he went I loaned them $20 once and then <laughs> um we're waiting backstage to meet everybody and it, this is so funny he goes oh don't mention nothing about the $20. <laughs> he probably loaned it to him in 1957. You know what I mean? It was so cute. And and he was, you know, he was a, a very righteous, a very, uh, you know, he he was blacklisted because he was a communist or he was a, a socialist or whatever. You know, he believed in it, workers' rights and he believed that, um, you know, well, P.S. He was allowed to believe whatever the hell he wanted to believe. That's the whole point. Yeah. And uh, a nicer, more generous man you'd never meet. And he had his his film career destroyed. Destroyed. I I feel very safe in my assumption that had he not been blacklisted, people would know him as a very well-known character actor. Without a doubt. Yeah. You know, as one of those, like Sheldon Leonard replaced him in Guys and Dolls, you know, and people know Sheldon Leonard. And anyway, it's, 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 it's a miserable, miserable period in our, in our nation's history. And um, it's also, I'll get political for a minute. It's worth noting that somebody who was behind the blacklist, Roy Cohn, was the person that Donald Trump idolized and uh the person at whom at, at whose feet donald trump knelt and studied yeah just 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 something to know yeah. he just you know so tom was a wonderful man he was in the Iceman cometh he had um letters from eugene o'neill oh. that he showed me and um i drove them up to the o'neill foundation and he donated them to the o'neill foundation the opening night manuscript of uh, the Iceman Cometh was a leather bound. It was a gift. It was an opening night gift from Eugene O'Neill, and it was a leather bound manuscript of of the play. And he was suffering from Parkinson's at that point. And I think his writing was very, geez, wow, 
I knew it at the time, but I'm thinking about it now as having been amazing that I touched it in my hand, you know, that's really amazing. But anyway, he had Parkinson's at the time. So he would write the notes in this tiny little handwriting, I guess, because it, he, you know, it was easier to keep the pen close, the, the letters close together so that his hand wouldn't shake. Uh, however, his wife, um, was it Carlotta, his wife? Uh, I forget his his wife's name. He married, I think, Eugene O'Neill. No, did he marry Eugene O'Neill? No, he. No, I think his wife's name was Carlotta. Carlotta, his wife, would type out the letter. Oh. And on the other side of the of the of the book, when you open it up, Eugene O'Neill's letter, or handwritten note, would be on the paper, maybe, of the binded of the bound manuscript, and then in a little envelope inside is the typewritten trans, you know, transcription. So that you could understand what he wrote, and I have Xerox copies of those somewhere. God, I gotta find them. And O'Neill liked him, and uh, wrote him a letter and said, "You were the first person that we cast. We knew you were Rocky Piogi." And it's it's, it's it, one of his proudest moments in his life is is having been in the Iceman comic. Yeah, you know, and Guys and Dolls, of course, was as well. Unfortunately, however. Unfortunately, that was exactly when he got blacklisted. So it was a, it, you know, it was a, it was a hard time, but he never, he never referred to it as a hard time when he, when I spoke to him. So I do want to sort of go back and ask you about some of this community theater that you yeah. were doing. Before. So do you remember any sort of favorite roles that you got to take on during this time? Well, we started with Mac and Mabel, which was such a gift because it's, you know, it's a rarely done show. Even I knew that. And so I was ecstatic. And um, and we were doing yet another version of the book. Because what happened was I had interviewed Jerry Herman when I was in college at my college radio station. Okay. And I had his number. So I called him up. And I said, I'm doing Mac and Mabel. And he went, oh, Christine, you're doing Mac and Mabel. Who's playing Mac? I'm like, Dr. Schlotman? Because it was community theater. I don't think he realized it was community theater. I, I in my stupidity, didn't realize that there was probably a difference, you know? <laughs> um, and, but he didn't care. He said, tell Jeff that he's got to play him nicer and blah, blah. And he said that, Jerry Herman told me that Part in his estimation, anyway. I have since read uh, Gower Champion's book. I, I've forgotten what Gower Champion. I, I have forgotten Gower Champion's take on a lot of it, but I remember that Jerry Herman told me that they were taking it very seriously. Like they it, visually, it was very. Um, it looked very sepia toned, like a like a silent movie. They went so far, according to him, as to take the Bathing Beauties costumes and dip them in. Um, ammonia to yellow them out to make them look like a sepia-toned old silent film and the biggest problem with the show is uh loved her hated him he was gruff and bellowing and yes that's how he was in real life but in theater you need to still side with the you know you gotta you can't dislike and only dislike part of a couple because yeah. you are after all rooting for both of them so at the end of the play on Broadway, as I understand it, and certainly on the album, as you may know, and uh, you know, 
he sings, I promise you a happy ending, and you want to rip your heart out and die. And he looks up at a picture of Mabel Norman and says, you know, see you, kid. And, you know, she's dead from uh, booze and drugs and bad living, and he's alone. Yay! Da-da-da-da-da-da, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, that kind of didn't work. And so the book that we did, which is, I guess, a, an alternate book that they gave out for licensing, has him saying that Mabel Norman died on such and such. Actually, Mabel Norman died on, I can tell you, because I was just looking at my uh, calendar, and I don't know when this is going to um, air, but a year ago, on February 23rd, 2020 a few one of the last stage shows i saw the encores oh. concert version of mac and mabel on february 23rd 2020 and she died on february 23rd like 1920 or something you know something crazy like that um so he says this on stage and then in the licensed version that we got he said you know, Mabel Norman died on such and such a date, but not to me, never with me. She'll always be up there throwing pies in somebody's face or doing a pratfall or making people laugh. And so I'm going to end this the way I'd end a movie, you know, yeah. and he brings out, then you have this funny little strobe light, silent film pantomime of Mabel coming out and the, the, the bathing beauties as the, as the bridesmaids and the Keystone cops as the groomsmen. And, you know, in a crazy, just hilarious, silent film, a pantomime version of a wedding. And that's how the licensed version ended. Then I saw it in, at Paper Mill Playhouse and they had yet another variation on that theme. Then I saw it in London with Howard McGillen and Caroline O'Connor. That added a whole section about him being uh, him talking about his wounded inner child <laughs> then i saw it again in london total surprise i went to london i just didn't make any plans didn't do any research ahead of time and i noticed that mac and mabel was up on the board and i'm like really who's doing mac and mabel and it was john doyle oh so it was and that in and of itself should tell you what a bulletproof score Mac and Mabel is. It's because John Doyle, it does shows, often does shows, it's not the only thing he does, but John Doyle does shows that um, require often the, the actors to play their own instruments. And, you know, even though they're good, in, you know, they're good musicians to a degree, uh, they're not- um, You need a bulletproof score. Yeah. You need a bulletproof score. And this was a bulletproof score. And it was a smaller version of it, which I really liked. So I have a long, I, have a, I, I keep on coming back and back and back to that play, but I did it in community theater and I loved it. And then I did, uh, I did every great part you could imagine. I mean, I did, uh, after that, it was, gee whiz, for God's sake, what did I do after that? Evita, beautiful oh. production of Evita. I did... Um, my Fair Lady, and we just had a screening of that. I mean, I haven't seen it. I have not seen it since I did it, and we had this screening of it, and it was so delightful to watch. Oh. 
I was just, I should have told you about it. You probably would have enjoyed it. Um, and uh, Audrey in Little Shop and Petra in Night Music and Mary in the Librarian and Music Man and the narrator and Joseph and oh, Fanny Bryce and Funny Girl. That was the next one I did, Fanny Bryce and Funny Girl. And, you know, those fistful of roles that was my, that was my musical theater school. Yeah. I didn't get four years in college to study, but I got like five or six years in community theater to do all these juicy, juicy roles. So it was, you know, it was pretty fabulous. And would you say, I was going to ask you what you sort of learned from doing these about not just performing itself, but what it would be like to have a career as an actor? Uh, well, no, I don't think I learned anything about, I don't think I learned anything about what it would be like to have a career as an actor, to have a career as an actor by doing community theater. I learned what it was like to learn a role and to and memorize and to develop a character. And you know what I mean? I learned that stuff, but I didn't learn anything about the business because it isn't the business. It's nothing like the business. You work your, you know, you have long rehearsal periods over three months and then you uh, have four performances and that's it. So it doesn't, ref it doesn't, it doesn't um, reflect the business in that respect at all. And you, you know, you don't, well, you don't get paid. So <laughs> um, it's kind of like the business in that respect, but <laughs> No, it, it, it didn't, that didn't prepare me for the business of it. No, nothing can. What I will say, and I've said this, I think John and I, John Tracy Egan and I have had this conversation, but I've certainly had it with other people. Kevin Chamberlain and I have had this conversation, which is that it is as valid a creative and artistic experience and as rewarding a creative and artistic experience as anything you'll do on Broadway. Yeah, You know, none of us thinks, wow, you know, I was on Broadway in dot, 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 fill in the blank in this really expensive, gorgeous show. And that was fabulous. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> like that rinky dink little, you know, yeah, uh, you know, damn Yankees I did in that ramshackled old barn. Um, I mean, there might be some really pathetic productions, but I've not been a part of them. I Every ounce of um, commitment into it is the same as every ounce of commitment you put into Broadway. Yeah. You know, and, and I, and I have spoken to a lot of people in uh, the business who, who, who agree with me, who agree with me, Yeah, you know? And so that's, what's, that's, what's great about it. I mean, I was with friends watching this, my fair lady the other night and they have done in the, let's see. Uh, in the 35 years that they've been doing community theater, I can promise you they've played more parts and done more shows than I'll ever do, than I'll ever do, certainly than I've ever done, than I'll ever do, than most of my people who work in the theater will ever do because they just do two a year, three a year. Yeah. You know, they don't do eight shows a week. It's a different, it requires a different amount of time, but they do them consistently and they're, they're stars to me. And so many of them are so good. They're so good. You know, many of them are, you know, you know, well, my leading man, uh, Dr. Schlotman, <laughs> you know, has his equity card. He's an equity performer. Um, and I mean, he hasn't used it, but he got it and did some equity shows. Um, and 
he's a wonderful performer. Yeah. You know, he could be on Broadway. So I have nothing but the highest regard for for community theater and, and amateur theater, whatever you want to call it. I call it community theater. That's what, you know, I don't know what other people call it. Yeah. So I want to ask you next how you first started with Forbidden Broadway and how you first... Well, I went to an open call. I wasn't going to go on any more open calls. I'd had it. I was, it was, it was five years of nothing, four years, five years, no, five years of nothing, just nothing to speak of, nothing of, of note. And I, I just made a vow to the universe. I just said, nope, this is it. I'm not going on any more open calls until I get an agent. Now there was no way for me to get an agent because I didn't have a, a resume. So that vow to the universe didn't make any sense at all. It defied any kind of logic, but I didn't care. I just said, no, I, f I forgive you, Christine. I allow you to just not put, I allow you to not put yourself in this demeaning, degrading, hopeless situation anymore. Mm -hmm. Even if it means that you're going to be in another hopeless situation, at least it's a different hopeless situation. And like the next day there was an audition for Forbidden Broadway in the paper. And I thought, you know, I always knew I thought I might be right for that show. And so I, I said, all right, okay, this is the last one. And it was the last one. I went in and I did it and it was the last one. Yeah. And I got it and I was, I mean, honestly, working for that group of people consistently for almost 15 years. And then I went back and I did Spamilton, which is, you know, another two years of my life. And, and uh, uh, it, it was just, you know, we were just meant to be, and we are a family and we, the people in Forbidden Broadway just have this additional skill. It's an additional skill beyond singing and dancing and being funny. And it has something to do with just sportsmanship, you know, like a strange sense of, of musical comedy sportsmanship that boy, oh boy, do you need when you're doing, you know, an inexpensive show that, you know, only has four people in it that needs to maximize every square inch of rehearsal time and preview time and needs you to learn things this afternoon and do them tonight over and over and over and over again, by the way, it's not like, you know, uh, they do it once or twice or three times. It's constant. Uh, you, know, you preview for 12 weeks, 13 weeks, 15 weeks, six, 17 weeks. It was crazy the number of weeks some of the sometimes the show previewed. So that we, it was a good fit. It was just a good fit. And I also credit Gerard Alessandrini with also knowing, I don't know how, he and John Friedson, the producer, I don't know how they, they know. I don't have a feel for that additional skill that sportsmanship skill i'm talking about but they have it they yeah. just they just have it they they i mean there's been rarely a case of a, of a forbidden broadway cast that you um, know that had a that had a bad egg in it that had a you know a sour you know just somebody who was trouble or nobody liked it's it i can't even think of one i i, I think of one <laughs> you know it's it just doesn't happen often just doesn't happen often yeah so had you been doing impressions up to that point or was that when you started or? No, never did an impression. Um, I mean, I didn't think I ever did an impression. 
I just, I do, I do remember once being on the phone with my cousin and, um, I was singing the way we were as Barbara Streisand, you know, just making fun of it. You know, it's the laughter we will remember whenever, you know. I, I didn't even think I could sing. I just thought I was sounding like, I, I thought I was just making fun of Barbara Streisand. I, not making fun of, but just, you know, just like, just trying to mimic her silliness. I thought I was being silly. I didn't think I was being a mimic and I didn't think I was being a singer. Yeah. And in retrospect, I remember my mother had, um, Barbara Streisand's greatest hits and I would stay home on Saturdays because she would work and I would clean the house and I would put on Barbara Streisand's greatest hits and I'd sing along and I'd hit every note but I didn't think I could sing because if you could sing I mean wouldn't somebody I don't know would wouldn't the singing fairies come and take you away to the place where Broadway you know where you belong like I, I just I didn't know how to get to that strange world where people perform it was like when I first saw the radio station they opened the door at the college at the Fordham University. And I said, what's this? And she said, this is the college radio station. Now I'd never been into a radio station. Okay. Remember the things that we can do now with technology, making our own videos, making our own recordings, that was um, mystifying. It happened someplace in another part of the world at, at, that normal people never got to go to. So when the door opened to the radio station and I looked in and I saw a guy behind a desk reading the news and then in the engineering room, she'd say, Mayor Dinkins uh, at his press conference today spoke of wanting to uh, uh, you know, add uh, more uh, policemen to the lower blah blah side so that the, because of the recent crime wave. And then they'd make a little point. And then there were these, they looked like eight track tapes we call them carts and they'd be lined stacked up and the engineer had them numbered and you know in the order that they would be used and he'd pop one into the machine and he'd press the sound bite and it was each sound bite had its own like eight six inch long one inch deep cassette and that's where the sound bites came from and I remember thinking to myself oh my god that's how rate that's how what I listen to is physicalized here's the physical manifestation of what I listen to and I, 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 I needed that. I needed to, you know, so I, and so for the theater, I kind of had uh, a similar feeling about the theater. I didn't quite know how you got to get that opportunity. I mean, I knew you stood on a stage and you sang. I knew how they physically did it, but I don't know how you actually got yourself that opportunity to do it. It was more about the opportunity that I never understood and how you were told if you were any good. Oh, impressions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I only did this impression of Barbara Streisand. It wasn't even, as I said, an impression. And then, and that was it. I, and my grandma, you know, I always do accents. That's really what I did. And my father did accents too. And, you know, and everybody, you know, appreciated and would laugh if I did an accent. Um, uh, always my grandmother, I would always do an impression of my, you know, not an impression. It was just when we talked about my grandmother, that's how you talked, you know, oh, Maroni Christine, what are you doing? Oh, you're going to be lady, making me later for church. You know, I mean, she, she had a, she had a vintage broken yeah. English Italian accent. Uh, yeah. Just any, when I did Godspell, which was my first play in high school, uh, she had me do something in an Irish accent oh. and I could always do accents. And so I just assumed that I might be able to get away with something in Forbidden Broadway. And so I, 
they asked if I did impressions and I said, well, I've never done them, but I do my Italian grandmother. And I did. They said, do her. And I did. And then they said, can you do Carol Channing? And I said, well, everybody could do Carol Channing. Cause I actually had met her at that point at an event that I volunteered for. And, and she's pretty easy cause she's so extreme, you know? Yeah. And that was enough for the moment. That was enough to get me cast and uh, and then I acquired my skills were were sharpened considerably over time. Yeah. And but you see, it is also a question of it is also a question of the ten thousand hours. You know, not that I mean I have indeed put in my ten thousand. You know, the term, the concept of they say you, you need to do ten thousand hours to get to be an expert at something. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um. I most assuredly did <laughs> 10,000 hours in Forbidden Broadway. I can promise you that. And I have done 10,000 hours of silly voices and impressions. So I want to ask you, what is the first thing you do when, let's say, Gerard Alessandrini says to you, we want you to do this person in Forbidden Broadway? Well, it depends on the person. I, um, I you know, I'll, I'll think to myself, are they even in my wheelhouse, you know? Yeah. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I think I can do that. And I don't worry about it too much because, 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 because you also have the luxury with Forbidden Broadway of doing eight shows a week and figuring it out as you go along, you know? Yeah. Um, and so there is that. And then sometimes, yeah, I'll listen to them, you know, to see if there's anything I can figure out, but I don't spend that much. I don't need to spend that much time listening to them because I remember what they sounded like yeah. in my head. It's not like I have to listen and really listen and re-listen and dissect it's like it all, I, I kind of figure it out with a couple of go rounds if I can even attempt it but then also what happens is again with the with the eight show a week which I've been very spoiled to have had especially with this other show musical the musical mm -hmm. um you know I'll do somebody who seems on the face of it to be kind of like Oprah my Oprah started out pretty boring serviceable perfectly serviceable and then I suddenly started to find little things she did. Now that may have come from watching a lot of Oprah because I like Oprah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, but she got a lot better. You know, Liza Minnelli got a lot better than the Liza I started out doing when I was, you know, in my first year of Forbidden Broadway. That's for sure. So, you know, that's the thing. That's why I tell people to always get on a stage whenever possible. And that's not always possible. But if you're in an environment where there's an open mic anywhere, then just get there. Yeah. You know, just just get on the stage and sing something because there's not always a lot of opportunities to do that, to, to do that, you know. And so, is there an impression that you love doing but haven't gotten the chance to do as much? Well, there's like people that people don't know, like yeah. Blossom Deary. Do you know who she is? Yes, yeah. I <laughs> you know who Blossom Deary is? Yeah, I, I, I do. Well, you know, I, I, I could do a Blossom Deary if I wanted to. You know, there's no business like she I can do a Blossom Deary. You know, you got to give me a minute, but... um. Uh, but nobody's going to care about Blossom Deary, but you and me. And so it's going to be wasted. And, you know, I said, people like what they know. And yeah. for example, I do Audrey Hepburn and I did her in my 12 Divas of Christmas. Um, let me see if I can do it. It may not come out right. On the third day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge <laughs> in a pear tree, you know, and 
I loved doing it, but only one guy liked it, and that was the major. That was the uh, the manager of the of the of the restaurant. So he'd always make sure that Audrey Hepburn was in the hat because people pick names out of a hat for that. And um, but you know, I'm not so sure there's anybody under 50 years old who could really care about Audrey Hepburn, and that makes me angry. But alas, that is the way of the world. Even Betty Davis and Catherine Hepburn, people aren't even that, you know, hip to anymore, which is which is illogical to me because my generation should be the ones who don't know who the hell she is because she was they were not stars when I was born. They were old women when I was born. Okay. Your generation and, and they were old women who I could only watch on television. Uh whenever they were on television, which was whenever the network decided to program it. So it was random, but your generation can look her up. And, you know, by the end of the next hour, you could be a scholar on Betty Davis. And by the end of the next day, you could be well-versed in many of her films. And by the end of the next week, you could just be a freaking, you know, specialist on Betty Davis or Catherine Hepburn, just by sitting in front of your computer and doing due diligence and watching everything and, you know, so I, you know, it, 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 it shouldn't be that these older, these older um, women are of less interest to the younger generation. The younger generation has much more access to them, but yeah. they have access to a million other things that are taking up their time, I suppose. So, so yeah. there's that. Yeah. So I want to go back to Forbidden Broadway for a second to ask you if you have had any favorite sketches from Forbidden Broadway that were cut? Oh, goodness, yes. Let's see. God, that's it's hard to remember them, though. We did so many of them. Um, we did so many of them. I wouldn't, I don't know. If, uh, well, okay. Angela Lansbury. Um, it didn't last very long, I don't think. Um, if theater is no longer lovely if actors are no longer lovely if you know Broadway isn't no longer tuneful then I don't want to go it was all about the things that were changing about Broadway and she's like this was before she came back in whatever she came back in um and she was basically saying who wants to come back to Broadway if it's going to be all you know cold rock operas and just not pretty anymore not like the razzle dazzle Broadway that she she knew from Mame and that didn't have too long a life Oh gosh. I, I the I have a whole banker's box behind me of binders full of Forbidden Broadway numbers and songs and I I uh, not the majority of them don't have sheet music to them it's mostly lyrics but I can't even begin to tell you how often you have to cut stuff and it was a lesson val- you know it was a valuable lesson learned. That's probably one of the best lessons you can learn. Uh or one of the best lessons you'll learn from a show like Forbidden Broadway, because you know you spend time, you spend time d- d- learning. First of all, learning a number, just investing manpower and sweat and brain cells into learning a number, and and you do it for a week or for three days or for one night, and then they say it's got to go. We can't. We have to cut that it's just not working or it doesn't fit next to this number or we can't, you know what I mean? And in the beginning, it's like, no, God, why? What do you mean? You know, and then you quickly learn, let it go. You got to let it go. And it's a good life lesson to apply to anything. 
yeah. it's, you know, this, it, it may, you know, you may, you may have to let things go, even if they work on many levels, but if they don't work on certain other levels that are more important, you have to let it go. I can't remember. I can't remember anything that we cut that I've desperately missed, but um, I remember things that we cut that were god awful. So <laughs> I, I was happy to see them go. <laughs> happy indeed. So I and I do want to ask you what it was like to then have the introduction of Alvin Colt's costumes. Well, Alvin was a, a you know Alvin a costume my cousin Tom and Guys and Dolls. Oh. Because he caught, he was the costume designer for Guys and Dolls, and I actually, I, I didn't meet Alvin, but <clears throat> when I was uh, in school, I volunteered for Night of a Hundred Stars, which was an epic. Um, they ended up doing three of them, but the first one they did was the epic one, and it was at Radio City Music Hall, and it was to benefit the Actors Fund, which ironically I am a beneficiary of right now they're helping me with housing in a big way um anyway i would bring the stars up to their dressing rooms and it was an amazing 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 job i mean they had a whole bunch of us there were so many stars that you know we called they called us star guides and we we took them all up to their dressing rooms and they were like putting them in they were like doubling not doubling they were like quadrupling six people it was like nick ashford jerry orbach robert klein placido domingo uh and billy crystal all in one dressing room which was basically an office because they didn't have enough dressing rooms for all these people so i had to go somebody told me frantically to go deliver a message to alvin now i just thought the name alvin was so funny and i just i went upstairs to the it was a rehearsal room actually um that they turned into the costume room and there's a big fashion show that was part of night of 100 stars and every fancy pants female tv star whatever star you could think of was in this designer fashion show and there was one designer for each star and anyway so i just had to go leave a message or something for alvin and i just remember going up is Alvin here? I'm supposed to look for Alvin. Anybody know where Alvin is? And I just love saying the name Alvin. And then this very harried looking tall, you know, evil looking man just went, well, I don't have time for that. What, what is it? Oh, well, put that down. I just don't have time for that now. And I'm like, okay, okay, bye. And that's all I knew from Alvin. And then I met him under much more favorable circumstances when he did Forbidden Broadway. And he was in his eighties at the time. Uh, a man who'd worked with every big star in the world and he loved the job. He loved it. I mean, absolutely no budget whatsoever, but he got the biggest kick out of buying cheap costume jewelry and figuring out funny ways of, you know, one of the biggest, um, the addition of Alvin into Forbidden Broadway added a level of comedy that had not quite been there before. You know, when Alvin costumed the lights would come up and people would laugh yeah. um and 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 that was n not usually the case except in the case of annie because annie was smoking a cigarette <laughs> so that was a that was a you know an action really um but uh alvin his funny one was the the lion king the rafiki 
costume. He had like rubber Playtex dishwashing gloves that he taped chopsticks to. I think the headdress for the Lion King was all toilet bowl brushes. And I mean, he, he was delightful and he was charming and kind and warm. And uh, we all loved him so much. He, we, I, I say this about Alvin a lot because when I think of Alvin, I smile. And that is, uh, that is all the legacy I think you could ever want in life. Yeah. And it, if, if, if nothing else, and I say this to you as an adult to a young person who certainly already has this ability, but um, it, you know, it's important that you, you think about this. It, that's really all that matters, you know, yeah. as life gets harried and complicated and you, you have goals and dreams and a, a to, your to-do list gets longer and other people seem to be accomplishing more or things don't work out the way you plan. Honestly, if at the end of the day, when people say your name, they smile, I can, I can only imagine that wherever you are, you feel it after you've left this earth. That's what I think. And I feel it with Alvin all the time. I just smile. I mean, I can't believe that so you know what a wonderful uh, gift to just make me smile he's not here you know he's making me smile yeah. and i want to ask if you have a favorite costume that he had designed for you he had a he had so many of them he had a well a bet midler dress that i gave him a dress that i liked and he had them make it in orange you know and it was a flouncy 1940s kind of a thing and i just loved that dress and because it had you know it just bounced when you walked and he um he created this white coat with a pink lining for Sophia Loren, very 1950s grand, you know, coat for Sophia Loren. And I can't remember. I I just it's all a big blur. I just there's too I've done too much. You know, he did, I think one of the funniest things he did was I had to be Liza Minnelli after an Oklahoma number. And I had to be Aunt Eller. But at the end of the Oklahoma number, it was a blackout and you heard dun, 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 ladies and gentlemen, Liza Minnelli. And I was somehow supposed to get out of Aunt Eller, who had a gray wig, and into a red sequin pantsuit and a black wig. He created the red sequin pantsuit and then he created this plaid dress with an orange apron and it was it 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 looked like it was a skirt and a and a blouse with an apron, but it was all one piece. And it had a big piece of Velcro down the back. And I looked like a like two hundred and fifty pounds in it because I was underdressed. I had Eliza Minnelli under it. Yeah. And so at the end of the number, uh, it was called Old Revivals. Oh yeah. Actually, originally it was called O Tadeo. That's what it was called. It was called O Tadeo because Tadeo is a form of a certain kind of cinematography uh, that was big in the 50s that Gerard Alessandrini is obsessed with and nobody else on the planet Earth could care about. And so we had to learn an entire number about O Tadeo. Um, about, well, it's called Tadeo, Mike Todd, uh, Elizabeth Taylor's, one of her husbands created it. So anyway, at some point, I think this was... Uh, turned into old revivals and 
the song ends, old revivals, yow, blackout. One actor rips open the Velcro in the back of my dress and I pivot, I like, I, I spin out of it. And then the dresser runs in front of me, kneels in front of me with the Liza Minnelli wig. And there's a big piece of glow tape so that I can tell where the front and the back is. Cause it's a very hard wig to put on straight. Cause it looks pretty much the same in the front and the back. Um, but it doesn't, it feels the same, but it doesn't look the same. And, uh, and then does somebody hand me the microphone? I can't remember. But anyway, um, yeah, I think somebody hands me the microphone. Anyway, all of this happens during dun 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 dun, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Liza Minnelli. Yes, and I'm there, you know. And uh, you know, that was all Alvin's Alvin's handiwork. <laughs> that was all Alvin's handiwork. Thanks, Alvin. People out there, if you do a quick change by a fluke really quick one time then forget it like it's not like they'll he, he, gerard will ever let you will ever give you any more padding so yeah. that there's room for error you know and i think he figured out that really eight seconds is uh which is probably what i did in that dun 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 eight seconds maybe so I also want to ask you about another thing, which is Forbidden Broadway is famous for having lots of celebrity visitors. So can you remember any that were sort of the most exciting or the most funny to see? Um, we did have a lot of a lot of visitors. Um, I, I wouldn't say that many of the people I did impressions of. I don't think I had too many of those. Uh, I had a couple. I don't I la like Elaine Stritch came to the show and I don't think I geez, I don't. I don't think I know. I didn't do her in the show when she came to see it. Um, Patty Lapone, but she, but she loved the show. Patty Lapone came to the show, and I did do her. Now, well, the thing is, first of all, geez, that's a good question. That's the thing. I got, I did her in master class, and in her sketch she's she's conducting the master her master class as herself as patty lapone and she is critiquing angela ed weber glenn close and madonna and um the new york times chose to mention this in the opening uh, uh, at the beginning of their review of the show and it was a good review so i got flowers like the next day and it said dear christine thank you for our wonderful notices patty lapone and i i told everybody in the dressing room I'm like you guys what the heck who did this who sent this and there's like huh come on who sent this i didn't send it no seriously come on you guys who sent this well then i look at the flowers and they're expensive flowers it was a tiny little P.S. Another thing you should all know, if anyone's listening, if you want to give flowers to somebody on opening night, particularly in a Broadway play, don't give them a spray of roses or a spray of this or a dozen of that. There's no place to put them. They all end up in the hallway. This was a tiny little like, uh, like earthenware, you know, cup or something that had these incredible orchids, tight and small and beautiful. And it just, it fit on my dressing table. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, Patty Lapone sent me flowers. And then she did come see the show. And I honestly can't remember if she was in it. She must have been in it, I guess, at that point. Um, 
who else saw it? I mean, Carol Channing saw it many times when she was, she was always in the show. Carol Channing was always in the show in one way or another. Uh, who else was in the show that I, uh, uh, Bernadette Peters, I, yeah, Bernadette Peters saw the show. I don't know again if she was in it when she saw it. I just can't remember. Um, uh, Rosie O'Donnell, I don't think she was in it either. Um, I can't believe actually Madeline Kahn came to see the show. I remember that. And I said to her, I was so nervous because I did Rosie O'Donnell for the first time and my wig wasn't fitting right and I just didn't know how to focus. And she said, it was so cute. She went, well, maybe if you took the time, if you just didn't worry about it, maybe when you get used to it, she just wanted to talk about the problem, you know, like like how we can fix it because it was like a comedy problem. Yeah. Something like that. Just everybody, everybody in the world has come to see. Joan Rivers has seen the show. Uh, well, Angela Lansbury and B. Arthur came to see the show on the same oh. night as Rosie O'Donnell and Tyne Daly and Hope Lang. And that was a great night. That was probably one of the most memorable nights because Angela Lansbury and B. Arthur, come on, you know, and they really are friends in life. You know, they, they are bosom buddies in life. And um, yeah, that, that was, that was pretty remarkable, yeah. pretty remarkable. And every, uh, Bob Hope came to see the show. I mean, come on, Bob Hope. That I was actually a little, I don't get nervous. I get excited when people come to see the show and I really want to do a good job and stuff, but I don't usually get nervous. Nervous excitement is the most that I'd be willing to call it. But Bob Hope was like having, I don't know, it was like having, I don't know, Santa Claus be outside. I, I, I mean, he was very old at the time. Um, I don't know if he could see, to be honest with you. Um, and he could only stay for the first act. That's how old he was. But and we knew this actually before. It's not like he. Um, it's not like he decided he couldn't take it and had to leave. You know what I mean? Yeah. We, he, he. They explained before he even got there that he could only stay for the first act, which was very nice of them to do that because then it wouldn't. We wouldn't feel terrible that this legend left and maybe he left because he didn't have a good time because that would have been terrible. Well, Walter Cronkite came to see it with Helen Gurley Brown and. After the show, I went outside. I mean, I, you know, I, he wasn't, th they'd left, they had to leave. And I was disappointed, but what are you gonna do? So I go outside in front of the triad, which is on 72nd street. And, and it was quite a while now at the, this point, cause you know, the show was over. I go outside and there's a limo. And I, I think somebody calls me over to the limo and it was Helen Gurley Brown and her husband, and they're complimenting me. And there's Walter Cronkite. He went, oh, Miss Petty, I'm so glad I got to speak to you. I wanted, to, I felt terrible that I said to them, I couldn't say hello to Miss Petty. And now I'm getting to do it. And I was just flabbergasted that he even knew my name, that he picked up the freaking playbill and knew my name, that anybody in that car took the time to, to even retain my name, you know, for a moment and uh it I, I don't know it's just these are just delightful things because you know you see people happy that's the other thing you meet your idols but you also see them happy you know and that's important yeah and and that's the wonderful thing about forbidden broadway is that everybody really uh you know appreciates the show and needs the show for that for that reason so that was always beautiful. And oh, and in Los Angeles, many, 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 many famous people came to see it. Well, Cal Burnett, a, a couple of times I've met her and, you know, she's just, 
you know, she's just too special for words, Carol Burnett. I mean, she's just, Glenn Close came to see it. Um, Harvey Corman from the Carol Burnett show, Dom DeLuise, Steve, I don't know if you know Steve Allen, but he was another somewhat person I grew up knowing. Milton Burl. Oh. Milton Burl came with Steve Allen and his wife, Jane Meadows. That was a big wow. deal. And I will tell you this because you will care. Uh, I believe, yeah, Margaret Rutherford. Now, do you know so me? Margaret Rutherford was there. Feisty old woman, not that really that old, honestly, if you think about it. Um, uh, I mean, she was probably in her late 60s, maybe early 70s. She wasn't a decrepit old woman or anything. She was feisty, though. And she had long hair. I love that. And she came with Marsha May Jones. And again, I am so angry that at that time, if I wanted to brush up on my on my uh, Margaret Rutherford or Marsha May Jones, I couldn't hop into the dressing room at intermission and remind myself of things that I'd forgotten or that, you know? Yeah. So I was basing this all on having watched Gone with the Wind. You know, she was in Gone with the Wind. Um, uh, or having seen them in movies when I was a kid. And Marsha May Jones, a wonderful child actress, if you, um, I don't, I, I don't honestly know if she continued acting as an adult. I'm ashamed to say, but if you look her up, um, she was in uh, the movie The Little Princess with um, Shirley uh, Temple, and she plays evil, um, the just the evil, uh, spiteful uh, schoolgirl who who uh, doesn't like Shirley Temple. She plays. Um, in uh, Heidi with Shirley Temple, she plays, uh, I think Clara is her name, little girl in the wheelchair. And in in the movie, The Children's Hour, now this is the original Children's Hour. Wait, yes, it, yes. And it was called, it was called These Three. It wasn't called The Children's Hour. I think it was called These Three. She played the little girl who stole a bracelet that basically leads to a whole string of terrible events. And she didn't steal it. Anyway, watch her performance in that. Oh my God. As a matter of fact, I was just talking to somebody about the best crying in film, who the best, what the best crying scenes are in film in cinema history. And I think Marsha Mae Jones in these three is pretty amazing. Her acting is just, you don't know how somebody that young can go there but you yeah. know so I couldn't have been more thrilled to be talking to Marsha Mae Jones yeah and she told me the best story about these three which I know you will immediately rent and uh, um, ascertain its uh, validity Benita Granville is another uh, actress in the movie and she is she plays an evil evil person and Margaret Hamilton from The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yes. She plays the maid. And the maid is hip to this spoiled rich girl's bad behavior. And at one point, the spoiled rich girl storms out of the, the, the living room and, you know, storms upstairs. But Margaret Hamilton, the maid, is going to have none of it. She stops her and she grabs her arm. And Marsha Mae Jones told me that instead of calling her her name, which is whatever, Susan, she goes, Benita, come over here. 
she says, Benita, come over here. But she doesn't, she says it so fast because of course, Margaret Hamilton's voice, she's like, Benita, come over here. And she said, Benita, but they left it in. Oh. And so I have this, to me, I'm just, I, I, I was blown away. I have this incredible, you know, piece of information that I don't know how many people know about, but I know about it. And I love when I watch that movie to, to you know, just wait for it and fast forward it and rewind it and just listen to her yeah. say, but over here. Cause I know she's saying Benita and it's cause Marcia May Jones told me. So before I ask you about some of your acting that is not forbidden Broadway, I want to ask if you would ever consider doing another one or if there's another one in the future? If I can, you know, I have, uh, I have some challenges uh, right now with my performing um, because of my vision. And I'm very hopeful that, you know, maybe there'll be ways of fixing it. So I don't know that I, you know, I don't know what lies ahead for me, but um I actually have plans to do a, a, a two-person Forbidden Broadway, but it won't be costumed. Oh, It's going to be just, you know, an elegant boy-girl evening. Um, and so that's the kind of Forbidden that I would do because I could do that. That doesn't really require me to, you know, do any real staging or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I can do that with my limitations. And um, so, yes, I would absolutely. Oh, God, yeah. It's too, too it's, a, it's a part of my life and it's a part of theater. It's a part of theater folklore and, and, and our, it's a living part of our, our theater history as long as, you know, knock wood, Gerard Alessandrini is, is with us and, and willing to write and he always is, you know, he's, then that's it. That, that's what we did. That, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Most definitely. So I want to ask you after Forbidden Broadway about doing the um, Jekyll and Hyde concept album, which you did. So how did that sort of first come to be? Uh, Frank Wildhorn came to see Forbidden Broadway at the Tiffany Theater in Los Angeles. And he... I guess loved it and he invited us all to audition for the concept album and in the cast was uh, uh, in the cast of Forbidden Broadway was myself and um, Brad Oscar and uh, we two I don't know if the other two actors auditioned to be honest with you they were invited to audition I don't know if they did or not but Brad and I um got cast and we got this you know we were in the ensemble but we got this one little silly little duet that we did uh and then i was offered the houston i think it was houston production that it appeared was was going to go on the road too and that was a big deal because that was like my first big like proper like high would have been my first high paying um yeah a theater job because Forbidden Broadway was very low paying. However, I had been offered Forbidden Hollywood. And, you know, I knew Forbidden Hollywood was a good fit for me. It was a very good fit for me. And I thought, no, I'm going to do Forbidden Hollywood because I've, you know, I've invested in Forbidden Broadway and I think it's, you know. But I realized I hadn't been really offered it. I was just told it was being done. Yeah, that we're going to do it after this show closes. We were doing Forbidden Broadway. After we close this show, after the first of the year, we're then going to open Forbidden Hollywood. And 
I was assuming that they were going to use me, but I never actually got an offer. So I actually asked if it was indeed an offer. And I actually had to wait a couple of weeks to get an answer. And I, at that point, I thought, you know, I wonder if he's hemming and hawing because maybe he feels he can't make a decision. And so I just said, I just told them that I turned down the other job because he knew I had that other offer. Yeah. And I just told him that I turned it down because then he would know that I had nowhere else I had to be. You know, (laughs) I think me having somewhere else I had to be was making him feel confused and nervous about whether he should or shouldn't use me. And uh, so I, I just made the executive decision and it was a good thing I did because we did it and we did it in um, uh, uh, LA and we did it in San Diego. Then we took it to Los Angeles where it was a very well received and we met all of our idols that yeah. just Ruth Buzzy came to see the show. That was so funny. Um, and, uh, and then we took it to New York and I got a drama desk nomination. So it was, you know, it was a nice kind of a payoff after a long time investing in this, in this show uh, over so, so, so many years. It was a lovely acknowledgement. And I actually do want to ask you one more thing, which is who have been some of your favorite other Forbidden Broadway cast members to work with over your long? You want to work with people for different reasons, okay? And not different reasons, but some people sh- some people shine in your your memory, not 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 that um because uh like some people are great on stage, some people are particularly fabulous off stage too, you know. So you just uh, that's not that they're not great on stage. I mean, the time I spent the I spent a lot of time with Jason Graw. Oh. Um a lot of time with him in LA and he just just makes you laugh and he's so funny on stage and so Jason and Jerry McIntyre were a fabulous team um in Forbidden Broadway uh, Forbidden Hollywood actually is what they did um I I loved working with Brian Batt another funny crazy guy Michael Wett who did Forbidden Broadway long after I did it and you know must have broken some kind of record uh and then he and I went on to do Forbid uh, he and I went on to do musical so you know we get along very well. And he's another hysterically funny guy backstage. You know, it's part of what I was talking about, that sportsmanship thing. By that, I mean, I don't mean that people go, well, good morning. You're having a lovely day, Christine. Happy to be here at work. I don't mean sportsmanship in that respect, although that can certainly be a part of it. I mean, sportsmanship in that we have a sense of humor and we, we deal with each other's foibles. And because God knows I'm a neurotic, emotional wreck most of the time, not because of the show, but because of my own miserable life that I can't, you know what I mean? It's like, I, I'm just always, you know, um, got some kind of drama and, uh, uh, you know, Michael is just so damn funny and he's created, he's, you know, he has this alternate character called Ken Boysinger that was developed backstage at musical just from him singing in the dressing room. And it came from birthday cake. He would, he was, uh, as I recall, it, 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 we'd have birthday cake for people. We, we, the show ran 10 years. There was a lot of cakes. Yeah. And he would go something like, I want cake. I need cake. Please give me cake. Something like that. I'm singing it wrong. But it was just this funny over the top. And then it morphed and evolved into Ken Boysinger, <laughs> this really 
kind of oily, strange character, Vegas wannabe, 1970s vibe character. And, you know, it's that kind of, that, that's what I mean by everybody adapts to everybody's uniqueness. Um, and yeah, so Michael was special uh, for the women. My God, uh, I don't know. I mean, Suzanne Blakesley, I've probably worked with the most. She's a genius. Um, and I, I mean, a particularly, uh, and Laurie Hamill is a, a friend. I mean, just a beautiful woman too. Just, a you know, one of these great, great, beautiful people. And our understudy, Gina Kreismar, um, how she, I don't know how the understudies do it, period. I, I just don't know how they do it at all. Uh, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. Learning all the different parts and then actually going on. And then I, I just don't know how they do it. But so Gina has been the understudy and, and did ultimately do an addition as a, you know, as a, a member of the, of the company. Um, unfailingly dependable, lovely to be around, yeah. you know, again, family. And um, Jennifer Samard was, was one of the few people that I would stand in the wings and watch. Yeah. Her Bernadette Peters. I would stand in the wings and watch her Bernadette Peters. We only worked together maybe, I don't know, three, four, five months. I can't remember. But um, she was quite special. Yeah. And I want to ask if you have ever um, suggested uh, an idea for a parody. Oh, sure. Plenty of times. The the bit most famous one was um, I was doing Forbidden Broadway with Brian Bat, and I had just seen Sunset Boulevard because he had just done Sunset Boulevard. And when I went to see it, I said, Brian, what is going on with these microphones dangling off of their fedoras? Like they don't even put them on their head anymore. They, they're dangling like a wasp or a bug or a fly. I can't take it. And he said, oh, honey, they would shove those things like down your throat if you let them. They're just ruthless about those microphones. And then I was like lamenting the fact that um, we couldn't, we didn't have any reason to put any of the old, old Broadway stars back in the show, like yeah. Ethel Merman or Carol Channing. There was just, they weren't doing anything. There were, you know, most of them were dead. Carol was alive at the time. There was just no real reason. They just weren't doing anything. Yeah. And then I thought, oh my God, Ethel Merman should do a sing out Louise moment regarding the microphones. Something like that. She, when she comes to the back of the house and she, you know, when she's telling baby June to sing out or to baby Louise to sing out, well, Ethel Merman could have some issue and some interaction with Joe Gillis from Sunset Boulevard. And it could, it could be about microphones. You see, that's the thing. A number is often about the star or about the show. Uh, and whenever you can think of a, a new issue to talk about, uh, it's wonderful because he, he's touched on them all. He's touched on them all, but he's not done one about microphones. And Gerard's memory is, mine is different. Mine is that he came in the next day with the, with the, with the song. His memory is he went to lunch and came back with it. But he came back with, you know, I keep singing though my voice is air. I, you know, and then I come in and go, you don't need amplifying. You'll be loud as a lion, you know, and it's, it's a keeper. It's an evergreen song. It'll never get tired. It'll never get old. It'll always make people laugh. You can switch out the person she's singing it to. It used to be Joe Gillis and Sunset Boulevard. 
and it turned then they then they changed it to the phantom and who knows it could be somebody else you know just depending on whatever the most ridiculously mike show is that comes up but the phantom is the phantom is evergreen and will be forever yeah joe gillis not so much the phantom so they don't need to change it from the phantom they can actually leave it and and so i you know and then there was um oh oh sarah jessica parker was doing um, once upon a mattress and I really didn't have any problem with her doing it or anything, but I thought it was a, a funny spoof would be because, you know, she was a TV person or a movie person at the time. And not a lot of people remembered that she did Annie. Um, and I just thought it would be funny if they spoofed shy with the word why. Why did they cast me? Oh, why? And, you know, unfortunately with Forbidden Broadway, it isn't that you have to bite the bullet and deal with it if you're Sarah Jessica Parker. You know what I mean? Like they're going to make fun of something. And so, uh, uh, you know, it really wasn't that she did such a bad job or anything like that at all. She was delightful, but it was a funny idea and it worked. Rosie Perez, he wanted to do a Rosie Perez number and he told me to give him some audio of Rosie in her movies. Now, again, back then we didn't have streaming. So I rented like three Rosie Perez movies and I just recorded in front of the television, her talking. And then I gave him the cassette. And the next day, I said, how'd it go? I mean, did you get anything? And he said, Christine, you gave me like 15 minutes of cursing. It's like, all it is is cursing. I said, really? He said, yeah. And he's like, he was demonically happy when he told me this. He had like a glint in his eye. And I was like, I didn't even, I guess maybe I'd block it out after a while with her. I don't know. I don't remember there being that much cursing. But that's what he made that he he developed the number around how she was a serious actress. She was in fact nominated for an Oscar that year. And she had to try to try to control her desire to curse. Yeah. So I want to ask you next about your three Broadway shows that you did. So the first of those was Little Me. So what was your audition for this like? I have no memory of my audition for it. Isn't that funny? I'm sure I sang Shy. I probably sang Shy and maybe Do I Hear a Waltz, the end of it. I didn't have a lot of audition material. Uh, pretty sure I got it without an agent. I didn't have an agent at the time. They called me because um, the music director was a Forbidden Broadway pianist before my time, but he knew Forbidden Broadway people would be good in the character parts. And so it's funny because my friend has a podcast about Broadway calling, about people, you know, reminiscing about their first call. I remember I was in Boca Raton, Florida, and I got the phone call to audition, I think. Or did I get the phone call that I got the part? I can't see it. I don't remember any of it at all. And isn't that sick? Which is why I tell everybody to write things down because I am impossibly sentimental. If you saw the crap that I keep, okay, and I can't remember any of that, I don't know why. Yeah. Um, the next show was, uh, talk radio. And I got a call from Will Cantler, the casting director, because they wanted people who again did a lot of, had, had a wide, uh, vocal range. And he figured a forbidden Broadway person would be good. Uh, he went with, you know, they ended up going with like me and Barbara Rosenblatt, who is a renowned talking book narrator. Oh. you know, audiobook narrator. So, and she's brilliant. So they went, they, they really looked at, at, and, and apparently Eric Bogosian wrote the play. According to him, he said that he wanted to give his voice actor friends some way of working. And, um, 
I remember that. The audition was pretty simple. I remember it just everybody was nice. Yeah. And I got I got the offer and that was great. And then I get a phone call from the casting director saying, call me, you have another Broadway show offer. But I had an audition for another Broadway show. What could he possibly be talking about? Well, I actually had like nine months earlier auditioned for the Martin Short show because they were going to replace somebody, but they ended up not replacing somebody. And so now she was leaving. They needed to uh, replace her. Thought, oh, are you kidding me? I cannot believe this. You know, you wait your whole life for, you know, two Broadway shows. You'd like them to happen separately, <laughs> at least, right? And I had to turn one of them down. And I had already, it, it was already too late, really. I mean, it, everything was in, in motion for, you know, talk radio it was really a done deal, essentially. And certainly in my head, it was a done deal. And anyway, it ended up working out because uh, the Martin Short show closed before I would have gone on. Oh, yeah. So it would never have happened. Yeah. But um, I do remember more of that. And Chicago was long and arduous in that the producer, Fran Weisler, who's <coughs> a friend, always very friendly to me and has hired me for personal events, um, who I really like Fran Weisler so much. And I was at her house and she said, you should be Mama Morton. I, I want you to be seen for Mama Morton. And I'm like, well, okay gee thanks you know and it took oh god I don't even know how long a year maybe uh before the casting director I called them actually oh. I called them because somebody told me they were auditioning people and and I said they said they were going to call me when they were seeing Mama Morton's and no call and now I find out they're auditioning people so I called and they said oh actually we saw Mama Morton's today oh. and they said could you come in tomorrow but I had just fractured my ankle and I was in a cast oh. and I honestly was you know honestly making the call because I had time to make calls like that I was just you know yeah, doing things that I normally would procrastinate doing and I said well I would love to but it's four o'clock and I got to find out if I can get a pianist who can run the song with me because I really don't think it's wise of me to go into an audition and not run the song. Yeah. And it's the end of the workday. So I, I just don't, and I have a cast on, so it's not like I can get out and hop around and, you know, it's really hurts. Like it was in pain. It was that, it was early in the process. I was supposed to be level. My leg was supposed to be level. But I had my, my, my pianist came to my apartment I went in and I auditioned with the cast on. A Barry Weisler happened to be walking out of the rehearsal room while I was waiting. And he said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm, I'm going in to be seen for mama. He went, I'll put you in the show. When do you want to go in the show? <laughs> Something like that. And I'm looking at him and I thought, I wanted to say, just a sec. I, I wanted to open the door and go, hey guys, I'm gonna go. Barry said he's gonna put me in the show. So he'll just talk to you and you work out a date. See ya, you know. But he was being so lovely. Um, so I auditioned and basically I was told that, you know, I made the artistic team's cut that I made, that I was approved to be on the list of Mama Mortons. And as soon as there was an opening, you know, and it was like two years later, three years later, uh, it seems like an eternity because it was, 
I get a phone call and they want to know, can I audition? And I went, I don't know if you know, but I already auditioned. And they said, yeah, well, they want a refresher and they want to have a work session with you. I'm like, okay. So I auditioned again. And then it was, I can't even remember if it was weeks or months later. Probably. They called me on a Monday and said, can you start next Monday? And I said, yeah. And then I didn't tell my parents that I got the part. I rehearsed for a week. And the following Monday, my opening night of what was going to be, a, ended up being an 11-week run, I um, told my parents I had free tickets for Chicago. Would they like to come? Fran Weisler gave them to me. No, they knew I knew her, so it wasn't fishy or anything like that. And never in a million years did they think, you know, anything other than they were getting free tickets to a show. And I was in the show. And I don't know if it was the wisest thing to do because I had uh, other things to concentrate on that night. <laughs> you know, I was I was in I was in a show I adored. I had seen it eighteen times at that point, like roughly once a year since it opened. And I was singing my first solo on Broadway, playing my first leading character a supporting character, I guess she's, is what you'd call her, I suppose. And um, I really should have just been focusing on that and not on whether or not my mother and father were going to have strokes when I walked out on stage. As it turns out, my mother thought when I walked out on stage, is this a benefit? <laughs> he just thought that maybe she was at a benefit. <laughs> Even though I was dressed the way I was dressed, she saw nothing, I guess, odd in the way I was dressed. And uh, so she thought maybe it's a benefit and that's what she was invited to. And my two friends were sitting with her because they, they saw to it, they went with them and they saw to it that uh, my parents didn't read the board with the names of the actors on it or read the playbill. They got them old playbills. So um, at intermission, it was so cute. They called me up and I was talking to my parents on the phone and um, my friends were videotaping my parents talking to me. So I have both ends of the, of the, of the uh, communication and my friend also, there's a video of it on my website. You can watch it. Um, it's a YouTube video about my opening night on, uh, in Chicago. Um, so I remember more about ch the Chicago experience yeah. than the first two. I don't, you know, well, maybe because it's Chicago and it's pretty sacred to me. I, I don't know. Um, so I want to make sure I get to ask you about two more things and the first of those things is musical, the musical. So can you say a little bit about what that is for anyone who doesn't know? Well, it's a satirical review, not unlike Forbidden Broadway, two boys, two girls, except this has original music and lyrics written by Rick Crome, who is a, 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 a well-known stand-up comic in the, in the stand-up comedy world. Over at the Comedy Cellar, he's like the little Yoda of the Comedy Cellar. Um, and uh, he does, he actually teaches stand-up through the comedy cellar. It's basically about current trends and cultural phenomenon in the news, in uh, pop culture, uh, politics. Yes. So, you know, there'll be Obama would show up and Trump would show up and uh, people who are running for, we, I think we went through two, we went through two presidential elections. So there was that. 
you know, uh, Madonna's been in it, Lady Gaga, I did Oprah, Susie Orman, who was the financial planner, Nancy Grace, who was one of the, you know, sensational uh, news anchors on some channel. Oh, gosh, uh, things about climate change, uh, just uh, things about online dating, things about the, you know, um, aging celebrities, just, just a, a good old fashioned musical, and more musical, not really a sketch comedy as much as not really not very many um, scenes, more like uh, mock you commercial mock commercials. Uh, a couple of those. You know, there's one about, oh, there's one about that me and Susie Mosier used to do about a pill, like a laxative <laughs> that I think is really helpful. And then um, <laughs> Susie plays my mother and I say, all you do is take one a day. And she goes, that's right. One, what? I went, just take one a day. Just one. That's right. Just one. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, and then, and then it goes, you know, it's that kind of thing. It's that kind of thing. And, um, uh, and it lasted 10 years. Our producer, Tom Dangora, kept that show running for 10 years in, in an environment that was not uh, necessarily kind to off-Broadway and certainly not necessarily kind or appreciative of anything to do with the news, actually. You know, maybe now it might actually be more, might have been more of uh, more interest. Um, well, it's a catch-22. Everybody was watching the news in 2020 because everybody was home because there was a plague and there was a hotly contested election. If there was no plague, nobody would be home. I mean, nobody would be home. So not many people would, not as many people would care about the news. So yeah. not as many people would care about a show about the news. So never mind. again. And many of the same forbidden Broadway people, Christina Bianco, forbidden Broadway person, Michael West, um, me, Taylor Krausor, forbidden Broadway person. Uh, I think Amy Griffith, was a, a bunch of forbidden Broadway people have made that, you know, yeah. have made that uh, that transition over to musical. And and Tom and Michael then went on to save the West Bank Cafe and save Birdland, creating telethons and, and specials for them and GoFundMe pages. And they saved two of the great, great theater venues in our community. And I do want to ask you about um, musical, the musical. What do you think you like maybe better about it than doing Forbidden Broadway? Or what do you... Like I don't have to change my costume. The costume changes are so much easier. And the singing, I didn't sing as much because with all due respect to Rick Crome, he's not Stephen Sondheim or Andrew Lloyd Webber. So his stuff is a lot easier to sing. Yeah. And uh, it, it was, and, and it wasn't as much singing anyway. So it was just an easier show. You yeah. know, it was a very easy show to do. And, and I didn't have like, because they didn't have a big budget, they, didn't, they had probably... 30% of the costumes that Forbidden Broadway had. Yeah. Most of them came from my closet. <laughs> you know, it was like, in this scene, I wear this sweater. In this scene, I wear that sweater. Because you're just playing news anchors or man on the street. You know, you're not usually playing yeah. crazy, crazy, crazy flamboyant people. There's a couple of moments where you do, but, you know. Yeah. So I also want to ask you the same question I asked about Forbidden Broadway, which was what were some of your favorite impressions to do? Um, I loved doing, uh, I loved doing Susie Orman. Hello, girlfriend, you are so denied. I actually went on the Susie Orman show and did Susie Orman for Susie Orman. She had something called Night of the Living Debt. And if you had the best uh, Susie Orman costume, 
uh, or maybe, no, it was the best costume. I don't even remember, but I said, look, I do her in a show and I could come on as her. And like, absolutely, but you have to have a, you have to have a business question. And I said, I have one. I have a lot of debt. I have a lot of credit card debt and I want to know what to do about it. And in order to ask a question of Susie Orman, you have to fill out a budget. I mean, this budget isn't just what do you have in your checking and your savings and how much credit card debt do you win? It is like, what do you spend every week on toiletries? What do you spend on food? What do you spend on cabs? What do you spend on shampoo? What do you, you know, uh, do you have a retirement fund? Everything about your life is written down. So she has, I guess, at her disposal or her people understand your financial history. That was just so I could ask her a question. Um, so it was nice to do Susie Orman. Joan Rivers loved to do, oh, can we talk? Joan, Joan Rivers is probably my favorite, honestly. I do Joan Rivers for Howard Stern. And um, some of it is unspeakable. It's funny, but it's unspeakable. I can't, I would never say it anywhere but on Howard Stern. Um, and really funny, but I could never say it to my mother. But in musical, I loved developing Oprah. I got much better at Oprah. And uh, Nancy Grace, bombshell tonight. You know, Nancy Grace was, she was a lot of fun to do. Um, and then I did some of the people that I've done in the past, like Angela Lansbury and, um, uh, oh, Fran Drescher. I did Fran Drescher. I'm just thinking, looking at my wigs, just I think of where the wigs were in the, uh, in the, in the, in the dressing area. And that helps me uh, figure out who I played. Um, but some of the wigs <laughs> I've used to play celebrities, but I didn't play a celebrity when I wore them in musical. So it's, it's just oh. wild. Um, but yeah, I liked being able to do people uh, out of the, uh, out of the Broadway realm. Yeah. So the last sort of thing that I want to ask you about is something that I love, which is your Sirius XM radio show. So how did this sort of start or come along in the first place? Oh. Sirius XM started with my college radio station. My closest friend from college right now is the, is, the, is the guy I met on my first day of college when I was 17. And we took my first class in college, was a film class, or a sociology class, I can't remember. And uh, and as a matter of fact, he was talking to this girl and I looked at these two people and I'm like, they sound, they look like fun. And we're all gonna go out to dinner on Saturday night, you know, so we're, we still see each other. But Paul Cavalcanti is his name and he's he's a member of my family at this point. He's, yeah. he's you know, my oldest, dearest friend. And um, he has never not worked in radio ever. He's never had a job outside of radio. And he, um, he um, just called to tell me that he was working at Sirius and they were looking for somebody, they were in the test markets and they were looking for somebody to, to possibly host the Broadway channel. And so this was in 2001 and I went in and I met with the programmer. I don't know what they called them back then, but anyway, um, and he seemed to think it was a good fit. And he said that uh, uh, just um, wait and, you know, personnel will call you HR human sort me human resources and to, to fill out all the paperwork and this was in like uh, September and it took them until like April to finally to finally get back to me and and fill out all the paperwork and you know and do what uh, anyway but I started in April of 2002 
And it's all because of Paul Cavalcanti. And of course, because I, I guess I majored in radio, so I had some kind of, some kind of experience. Yeah. And it was, um, it was nice to be able to do something in the field that I actually paid a lot of money and student loans to, to learn. I didn't, I, the whole, the whole, the whole industry changed and the whole, you know, um, dynamics and electronics and uh, the way it's run changed. And it's nothing at all like what it was like when I was going to school, but it doesn't matter. And so it was a godsend and I love the job and I, I love, it's, it's like, it's a miracle job for an actor to have. Yeah. And there's been an enormous amount of outpouring from listeners, particularly since COVID, uh, quite quite a lot. Um, and it's very touching because people are very connected to the channel. Yeah. Because they can't go anywhere. So uh, it's it's really, I think, deepened the relationship that they have with me and the channel has with them. And of course, the relationship that I have with them, um, even though I don't know any of, or many of them personally, I have taken to starting to call up listeners who write to me if they leave their number, if I have the time, because as you can see, I can talk and talk and talk and talk. And so they are 99% of the time, perfectly lovely people. And so I just talk a lot yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I don't have that much time and I just can't get off the phone. So um, it's been very rewarding in that respect. I have to say um, it quite, quite, quite something, quite yes. something. So I want to ask you um, how it works technically in terms of, do you go to a studio? Do you pick out the CDs yourself? Do you have to play them? No, everything is done on a computer, every radio is done on a computer screen now. I mean, it is, I don't think anybody in the, in the, in the big, in the bigger uh, uh, platforms pick up a CD or an LP or anything like that. I think it all has to be done electronically. So, and, and, and that's, you know, and that, and that's fine-ish. We have a program director, Julie James, she chooses the music. And I look at the music log and I determine ways of finding uh, a cohesive connection between just heard and what we're going to hear uh, or just a response, a reaction of uh, insight, a reflection, a joke of, you know, whatever, based on my decades of having gone to the theater and yeah. witnessed a lot. And yeah, that's how it works. But Julie, you know, Julie is in charge of the music. So to ask you to sort of conclude our interview, after having such a long and amazing career in the theater, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? Well, don't be afraid to ask anybody anything, just like you, Charles. You just ask and, and you be polite and, uh, you know, don't be um, an idiot, you know? Like, it's like, I would rather have somebody, it's like in the time of COVID, we all get requests. I'd rather have a short and sweet, succinct request than a lengthy um, manifesto on w w why you love the theater. And, you know, I, I, I just want to know that you're responsible and respectful. A couple of well-worded lines can tell me that, yeah. you know, um, but always, always ask um, and just know 
there for some reason, I was talking to another actor about this. I don't know when it started. Maybe it's because we listened to a lot of fairy tales growing up, but we we and 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 COVID has has um conjured a lot of this up in our in our brains. Well, it's conjured it up for everybody at the same time. That's what makes this such a powerful and potent time in the world. Yeah. And that is that when did we and you're younger, so you might be able to reflect back. When were we told that everything is going to be fine and that nothing goes wrong and that people don't get sick and that um, uh, basements don't flood and that uh, uh, dogs don't throw up? <laughs> when were we told that everything should simply absolutely run according to a perfect plan? Was it fairy tales that said, and then they lived happily ever after? Because the fairy tales say, Stuff happens, bad stuff happens, but then we fix it all and then it's going to be all good for the rest of our lives. And so I, we, we, so me and this actor were talking about this, you know, and he said, it's also the songs too. There's a lot of songs out there in the pop music world that talk about like true love and per the perfect relationship. And there's like so many of them about the perfect relationship. And maybe they're the thing. What We're just trying to figure out why it is that we just think that everything is going to be perfect, perfect, perfect. That's not to say that we walk around and say everything sucks. No, what it what what I'm trying to say is, we simply have to understand that this is an up and down, you know, yin yang situation in life, and not to sweat the small stuff, and not to be uh, quite as intimidated by the by the scary stuff. Yeah, you know. When, when the disappointments come, just know, oh, this is one of those disappointments I've heard about. Okay, well, that's over now. So good. Uh, maybe this means I got me some time before the next one, hopefully, but sometimes we don't, you know. And so in show business, in particular, there is no template, there is no blueprint, there is no nothing. Yeah. It is not a meritocracy, you do not get rewarded because you're good. Because if that were the case, all my friends would be working constantly. I might even be working constantly, but you know, you just have to understand that you are in a business that isn't run like a business in, in a lot of ways. Uh, and just to not freak out when, you know, because we just think we're all going to have Audrey McDonald's career or Kelly O'Hara's or Kristen Chenoweth's. And if you sat all three of them down, how much you want to bet that, you know, they're trying to figure out how to pay the taxes on their house or they're trying to, you know what I mean? They just have bigger problems, more expensive problems or concerns. So, you know, I would just say, calm down, just calm down. It is your story. It's not somebody else's something. And don't compare. Uh, learn from other people, absolutely. You know, I mean, learn from everything that Audra does beautifully or any other actor, you know, absolutely. But, you know, if you don't get six Tony Awards, <laughs> if you don't get one, if you don't get a Broadway play, you know, you just have to understand that if there's a voice telling you you did something wrong, then you're doing something wrong because of that, because you shouldn't be hearing that voice. Yeah. You know, you should be more in control and that should be something that you can start young uh, to just roll with the punches. And now the entire universe is learning that lesson at the exact same time, which is, but wait, I was gonna have a, a wedding with 250 guests. 
but wait, I was going to start college. But wait, I was supposed to have a heart transplant. And now I, you know, but, you know, but wait, I have, you know, uh, cancer and the plague. But wait, I have to teach this kid 20 in my house all day. You know, we've all had this like screeching on the brake, screeching to a halt in our lives. So we're all actually, I think, when we come out the other side of this, if people have been truly analyzing themselves in the situation, the next crisis isn't going to upend us emotionally in quite the way it would have prior to this. That's what I hope for. And I think that the next crisis in your show business life as a performer isn't going to um, freak you out. And I also think, honestly, this should also teach people that you can have another way of making income and not feel that you are betraying your life as an artist. Because yeah. it's not true. All right. There's, you know, you should pursue other things to make money, but never pursue anything that you don't enjoy. Yeah. And if you're an artist, chances are you're an eclectic person who has a, who understands a lot of different things and likes creativity or likes people or likes uh, humanity, might like animals as a result of that. You know what I mean? Just don't be afraid that you're doing something, uh, taking something away from, the pursuit of your career by trying to do something else because sometimes when you satisfy the the need to have security and have money you can open up yourself and be better able to uh uh approach your artistic endeavors because you don't have this constant distraction of wait how am i going to pay for this how am i going to pay for that so that's today's that that's today's psychiatric uh, pearl of wisdom (laughs) or philosophical pearl of wisdom. <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing this. I'm so glad to have been able to talk to you. Listeners, well, you- thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next week when I'm joined by a truly legendary guest, one half of a world-famous songwriting team, the one and only Alan Bergman. At the age of 95, he joins me to reflect on his amazing career and life including penning songs for performers such as Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Barbara Streisand, and Michael Jackson, for movies and TV shows such as Maud, Tootsie, Yentl, The Thomas Crown Affair, Sabrina, The Way We Were, including the famous title song, and E.T., and with composers such as Quincy Jones, Michelle Legrand, Johnny Mercer, Marvin Hamlish, and Cy Coleman. Some of his most famous pieces include The Windmills of Your Mind, Papa, Can You Hear Me? and nice and easy. On Broadway, he wrote the lyrics for the musicals Something More and Ballroom, collaborating with Sammy Fain and Billy Goldenberg, respectively. So make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.